edition of the Unicorns Podcast. This is a podcast series featuring business leaders, motivators, innovators, and general go-getters. Well, welcome to another edition of the Unicorns Podcast. And today, our focus is on real estate investment, but not here in Australia, but in the United States. Lindsay Stewart and Michael Eager have set up a new vehicle for Australian investors, which allows both retail and wholesale investors the ability and opportunity to invest in the residential real estate market in four initial US states eliminating taxation and the need for opening U.S. entities. The Cornerstone International Property Fund is a high-growth fund that is open for business with a minimum 50K investment. Both are guests of the show today. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Thanks, Justin. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Okay, Lindsay and Michael, let's start by both perhaps providing an overview of the Cornerstone International Property Fund and what inspired you both to create it. Lindsay, we might start with you first. Yeah, sure thing. So, I've been operating in the US market for a little over 10 years now um, and I've seen a lot of investors uh, very fascinated by the idea of diversifying and getting into the, the US real estate market but put off by the complexities I guess of international investing. So really my my founding purpose was to try and find a way where we could make investing in international markets a lot easier and simplify that process. Um, so that, that was really what we were trying to do with the Cornerstone, trying to make it a, um, a more straightforward way for an Australian to get into a, a US market. And Michael, perhaps uh, some, some initial high-level thoughts from you on, on your inspiration for getting involved at the, at the early stage. Yeah, look, uh, Lindsay and myself connected uh, well, probably almost two years ago now. Um, and coming from different backgrounds, obviously, uh, myself as an advisor, Lindsay as a US property expert, we got talking. And uh, in the more that our conversation discussion went on, as an advisor, I identified, uh, look, there was a massive opportunity here because... Currently, at that point in time, but also now, uh, there's just a big hole in the market for international property investment as an asset class to both uh, investors, but also fund managers uh, on a wholesale level, uh, and of course, financial advisors too. Uh, you know, obviously, funds are innovative, funds change over time, and I think there's still a lot that can be improved around the way they're structured and what they offer to investors. And knowing, obviously, uh, Lindsay being the best in the business, um, I was very excited by working with them and the opportunities uh, for investors. The US property market can be daunting for international investors. So how does your fund simplify access to this market for Australian investors? Yeah, a couple of ways really, uh, Justin. First and foremost, one of the important things we wanted to do was try to shield the Australian investor from international tax ramifications. Um, that can get very complex um, I mean, it's very different, of course, based on each individual person's circumstances. But, but I mean, with taxation here in Australia, taxation in the US as well, that, that was one of the biggest complexities. 
Um, so we've, we've been able to achieve that. Um, so, I mean, of course, if you were to earn uh, profit through the fund, as you would through anything, you'll, you'll be subject to taxes here in Australia. Um, but there's no US or, or international tax ramifications. Um, secondly, there's no requirement to um, start or manage any form of um, international companies or entities or structures. Um, now, you can invest in the fund, of course, in any structure you wish, but they're all based here in Australia. So there's no... So we've sort of avoided that international um, component. I guess lastly, the, the object of course is that with our expertise in the market, we've got great teams on the ground in each of those locations. That saves the investor having to worry about trying to find people um, to help them with their investments. We already have that. So it, it really allows the investor to piggyback off the network that we already have in the US right now. Could you, um, could you explain the unique features of the fund uh, and how um, you differentiate it from traditional property investment options. Yeah, sure. So, so a lot of uh, a lot of property funds either tend to be income focused uh, or pay out distributions as part of the developments as they go along, um, or they're growth style funds uh, which have you know high borrowings, uh, some interest rate risk, of course, there, uh, longer term duration developments as well, and capitals tends to be tied up for longer periods of time. So what we wanted to do, of course, was uh, provide a, a great investment solution as an asset class through international property. Uh, we also wanted to make the fund very attractive uh, from the outside too. So internally, um, there's no direct borrowings for the property development, uh, which lowers the risk there. And naturally, with interest rates being high at the moment, uh, reduces any costs there or eliminates any costs for that improves the feasibility of any uh, particular investment. Um, and then, uh, and look, from there, because the growth style fund, the way we set it up, we're not having to pay out regular distributions and the idea is that profits are retained inside the fund so people are investing uh, for the long term as well. So we managed to really make it growth focused um, with what we believe is lower risk given the fact that uh, there's no borrowings for the developments. Uh, and given the fact that also shorter term developments that we're participating in, there's no extended periods of time where withdrawals are going to be held back. I mean, commonly a property development fund in Australia, uh, if it's longer term, you know, they lock up for a couple of years. They do, yeah. Or redemptions are made, you know, intermittently. Uh, but we believe the structure and style we've got that clients are going to have or investors are going to have more liquidity than the average property development fund too. I note that there's a focus on single residential dwellings in specific U.S. states. Lindsay, perhaps a question uh, to you. What factors led to the selection of Florida, Texas, Michigan and Missouri for your initial investments? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I mean, to be honest with you, there's a number of states in the U.S. we could work in. All of them have... Um, great areas, some really great investment uh, opportunities and some very good deals. Single family uh, residential property has been my wheelhouse for a dozen or so years and, and over 20 years here in Australia. For me, the residential market is, is the safer of the markets. Um, everyone, you know, one of Maslow's hierarchy of needs is everyone needs somewhere to live. They need that security. So, so property for me was, has, was, was always that the bricks and mortar type type investment. 
those states, I started, when I first started, you know, 10 or so years ago, I started in Michigan. Uh, at the time, I worked full-time for General Motors Holden here in, in Melbourne. Um, so I'd been to uh, Michigan twice, I think. Um, so it felt like I knew a tiny, tiny bit about it. Um, so that was a, a, a good place for me to start. Uh, from that point on, I started to branch out and look for somewhere that wasn't under snow for six months of the year. Um, and, and we started to move move a little south. To be honest with you, Florida and Texas are probably two of my favourite states, uh, along with Michigan at the moment. Um, the amount of migration internally that's moving down into those states um, is the highest of any of the states in the US at the moment. Um, it seems that from the East Coast, a lot of the people coming out of New York um, Washington, Boston are moving down into Florida and on the West Coast, they're coming out of areas like um, San Francisco, um, Seattle and California, uh, um, Los Angeles and moving down into Texas. So, you know, there's a lot of movement down in there. Both of those states, while they have plenty of land, probably not so much Florida, but definitely Texas, there still is quite a housing shortage in those states. So that really gives us a lot of a lot of scope for growth um, down the track. We'll we'll be looking at some new build uh, opportunities as well. So those states were really handpicked for that purpose. Um, Michigan has some fantastic opportunities up there. Um, Missouri is another area I've been working for for some time and has the opportunity. For me, it's really I've got the team in those places already. So it was natural for me to start in, in those states um, when we put the fund together. Down the track, we could certainly look at expanding, but um, but at the moment, you know, that's where we have the team on the ground. Michael, uh, long-term investment is a key aspect of your strategy. So what are the advantages of encouraging investors to commit to a minimum lock-in period of 12 months and at least a, a long-term horizon of five years? Yeah, so the way we set up the fund uh, with multiple entities, both here Australia and the US is the idea, as Lindsay mentioned before, uh, to minimise tax but also to retain profits within the fund and provide um, an accumulating asset base with profits retained over time they're then reinvested. So first and foremost, uh, the investment strategy, we're allowing for approximately a six-month window for a single investment asset, i.e. a residential property, um, to complete that development. So with a 12-month window, we do need some certainty for the fund and investors um, to make sure we're getting consistent returns. Now, second of all, in terms of the long-term picture, uh, like any good growth fund, um, you know, when it comes to any growth investment, you know, shares, uh, direct property, growth-style funds, you know, there are moments, albeit we do believe volatility should be less with our fund. Um, there are going to be moments where maybe market conditions change in the short term, uh, and naturally, therefore, we want to make sure people are fo- focused to invest the long term, which is five plus years. And we really believe by doing so, uh, while it reduces risk, it also provides a higher likelihood um, of a higher return over time as well. So, Lindsay, you've been in this game for a long time now. You've, you've talked about your experience in working in the, in the property market in the United States. So, can you elaborate on the strategy of renovating these properties, or we might have heard the term flipping the properties? So, how, how does this work, and how does this approach benefit your investors? Yeah, sure, Justin. So, I, I believe one of the biggest opportunities in the US, and, and look, I wasn't in the US market prior to the GFC. So, I can only assume that the GFC was probably a catalyst in, in as much as the opportunity to purchase distressed properties in the US is very high, much more so than here in Australia. We, we 
you know, here in Australia, you generally don't get a, a significant amount of distressed properties. While there's certainly properties that can do with a, a facelift, it's, it's generally modernising the property rather than actually having a distressed property. So the US get, gives a lot more advantage of being able to get properties that are in, in significant need of renovation. The other advantage is, of course, is as Michael has uh, hinted at earlier, we're talking relatively short-term projects. So by buying a property, getting in, getting it renovated, you know, we're generally under the hammer for sort of, you know, eight to 10 to 12 weeks, have the property back up on the market, get it moved, get it sold and move on. It, it means that from my perspective and something that I've always, my entire real estate career, I guess, um, I'm not a fan of what I call buy and hope strategies, where you're buying a property and hoping that the market goes up. In these particular strategies, we have full control. We we make sure that we buy the property at the right price. We know what the market value of the property is, is around. Um, we can certainly control the renovation costs of that property. So that means we know what the, um, the profit or should I say the uplift in that property is going to be, and we're in full control of that. The period of time we're holding it generally um, limits any market forces um, exposure. Um, the market doesn't generally go anywhere quickly in three or four months. Um, even to be honest with you, with, with the recent spike of interest rates in the US and in Australia, um, the market really hasn't slowed down dramatically in the US, nor has it here in Australia. So, you know, not, not particularly, no. So, you know, it's still holding relatively firm while properties are not selling as quickly as they were. The prices are still holding solid. So it gives us an opportunity to get in, uplift the value of the property, um, get the property sold, reinvest that 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 again into, into new properties. Uh, if we do 10 to 20 properties a year, which I think we'll, we should be able to do that easily. Um, we'll probably do a lot more than that. But, you know, if we do 10 or 20 properties a year, if any one or two of the properties don't see a good return and the other 18 do, the chance of the investor getting a reduced um, return is, is minimal um, because we're spreading that risk out over over a number of properties. And what's normally the time frame between purchase of the property renovating the property, then flipping it, selling it. How how long does that normally take? What's that process like? From what we call contract to contract, we, we take generally around about from anywhere from three to six months, um, from having the property under contract and commencing renovation to having a contract of sale on the property um, and flipping it. Um, the quick ones can be even a little bit less than that, depending on, on days on market. At the moment, an average days on market we're seeing is around about 22 to 23 days, which has increased in the last 18 months. It, it was around about 12 days, so it's gone up um, by about 10 days, but it's still quite it's still quite quick. So, you know, we're not talking about properties sitting on the market for months. Um, you know, so we the idea will be to get in, get the properties renovated, Three to six months is is a really good good uh, median goal for us. Michael, a, a question to you, particularly with your background, your financial planning background. Diversification is obviously a critical aspect of any any portfolio, any investment portfolio in particular. So, how does the Cornerstone International Property Fund provide investors with a rare level of diversification? Yes. So, look, generally speaking, the international property asset class is very limited compared to other asset classes. I mean, there are some funds out there at the moment um, joining different styles with different goals and objectives. 
but we believe we're filling a really big hole uh, that we're very ambitious about doing long-term in different ways. But this first growth-style fund uh, is really something we believe can can really improve options for investors, but also advisors too. So people tend to think of Australian shares and they go, all right, beyond that, international shares, both pretty common. When it comes to property, people think Australian property because it does well by and large, um, but they don't think about the rest of the world and the opportunities that are out there as well. So, um, yeah, we believe it's really going to, to benefit investors and advisors uh, in that manner. And, uh, you know, a great solution here, we wanted to make it growth style because, you know, when you invest in property, generally it's allocated as a growth asset, right? It's high risk, high return, not quite as much as shares or equities, but in that general direction. Um, so if we produce an income fund on this first instance, uh, you know, we believe we wouldn't be doing it the right service or justice for investment portfolios. So we've set it up so it is a growth style fund where it's focused on an appreciating unit price where distributions are not paid out in this instance. The fund has been capped at $50 million. Can you guys explain the rationale behind this particular decision and how that would work with investors? Yeah, look, I mean, the $50 million uh, is, is the cap we've decided to put on it because naturally, uh, you know, with the market across the, yes, it's a lot bigger and whatnot, and Lindsay uh, has got some great experience here. We also want to make sure for every investor that comes into the fund, we're producing uh, good or expected very good return. Right, and it gets to a sort of important time where you know, things may become uh, more difficult to achieve that. Now, we we think we probably can continue to, but we're also planning to offer other funds that we think might be more complementary and can work alongside of it as well. But this is, uh, this is our first one, uh, which we hope is of a couple in the international property asset class. Uh, and yeah, for that reason, 50 million is where we think, look, there's going to be some other options out there for investors. Well, let's get into the details if we can, just for a moment. So for potential investors, I mentioned in the introduction, the minimum is 50K. What's what's the maximum investment amount? And, and do they need a, some sort of formal financial advisor's recommendation to participate? Yeah, look, uh, I mean, 50 mil if they want to, uh, <laughs> if there's one investor. <laughs> in essence, uh, there's, there's, there's no maximum um, on uh, on the investment amount. So minimum is $50,000. Uh, you can make additional investment amounts below that, uh, but there's essentially no maximum. It depends on obviously what your needs are, your objectives, and the advice. Now, there's two ways or two main ways that an, a retail investor could invest. One is uh, by obviously reading the PDS and reading the TMD. Uh, which does identify this fund as a satellite investment. So that means commonly you'd have no more than 25% um, of your overall investable assets um, in this fund. So that's if someone was to choose it themselves and invest, naturally doing their due diligence. Alternatively, uh, an advisor, uh, which we expect to get out to in the very near future uh, and partner up with the number of licensees and firms. Uh, if a financial advisor provides a recommendation, well, it's based on their risk understanding of the investor and how much they believe should fit in to their super personal trust or other type of investment portfolio. Lindsay, um, you've obviously given this a lot of thought. Um, talk to us about the specific segment of retail investors with, and I'm, I'm talking specifically around the age bracket 
Um, what are you looking for? Who do you expect to invest? Who are you targeting? And what makes you know this particular group unique? Yeah, for sure. Look, I, th- I think again, um, as Michael was was suggesting, it, it would be a good idea for them to get some advice from uh, an advisor first to make sure it's suitable for what they're looking for. But but we suggest that possibly you know we we had a, a a segment of retail investors between around 30 and, and 55 simply because being a growth fund you're, you're more likely wanting some time for the value of the of your investment to grow so over the age of 55 and again i, I can only talk generally here this is certainly not any specific uh, details but it's not financial it's advice, not financial <laughs> advice. <laughs> just to be clear but over the age of 55 most investors at that point would be starting to look for more income producing funds than probably from growth funds. Now, they certainly may have some growth funds already in their portfolio, but but at that point in time, as, as they get closer to retirement age and after retirement age, it's income that becomes more important to them than growth. So that's where I think we were sort of targeting this particular fund at the 30 to 55 mark. Those that have got the time to be able to set and forget, put it in there, let it grow for five, 10, 15 years, um, to, to really give them that, that wealth when they hit that 55 mark, then they could then use that money to then reinvest into more income producing funds to give them that income. Um, this fund is certainly not designed to give people an income um, over, uh, over, over time. So that, that was really the, the target. As, as Michael also said, our intention now is to, is to look at expanding into two or three more funds. Um, we will look at produ- putting together an income-producing fund in the U.S. market, um, and possibly also a project-based fund, which will be some larger um, investments. So that would give a lot of people a lot more scope. Then, depending on where they are and what they need for their portfolio, we may have a um, going forward. We'll have a product for them, but at the moment, um, we're going to start off with. And guys, are you able to forecast? Any sort of returns that you anticipate for investors in in your first fund? Have you been able to get any clarity on what that might look like? Because that's obviously one of the questions that's going to come up. Okay, I invest my money. What are the likely returns? Yeah, very, very good question. Of course, uh, you know, with ASIC and, and everyone else about, you've got to be reasonable with, with what we say here. But uh, look, essentially, uh, or officially in the PDS, uh, we've identified a competitive uh, growth return for the unit holders. Now, you know what that translates to depends on a few variables, of course. You know, commonly a growth style fund uh, that does deliver in the the higher end is aiming for you know double digits uh, and above per annum. And that's certainly our target uh, on a very cautious approach. Now, if we looked at any particular investment we're likely to bring on in terms of the investment strategy, uh, you know, if an investment uh, we're estimating takes anywhere from four to six months, you know, we're only looking at projects really which are going to bring about a return for investors after fees, taxes, management costs, and the like um, are incurred as well. Something around the six to six and a half percent per project for the investor. Uh, and you know, how many we can do through the year depends on a few variables. Um, you know, but we're expecting uh, again in line with a growth style fund, double digit returns and obviously upwards from there. So international tax and entities can be very complex. They're hard to grapple with. So how does your fund address these issues for investors? 
many a true word said there, Justin. Um, and look, that's exactly, I, I suppose, how our fund addresses that is that we have taken on board the international taxation and the complex entity structure. Um, and, and really, that's what happened. So we have put a an entity structure in place, which means that we are liable for the US taxation and we have to manage the entity structure, which allows the investor to be shielded from that. And that was one of our non-negotiables when we first started. Um, it, it has taken us, you know, as, as Michael said, nearly two years to probably get this off the ground because of the complexities of that. Um, and I must admit some considerable dollars and and some additional grey hairs, but um, but look at, at the end of the day, we have been able. To- Michael's got no hair. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, no, no hair as well falls into that basket. I should just point out to our listeners there, my Lindsay's grey. It's a very nice salt and pepper, and, and Michael's got no hair. <laughs> so there you go. Two, two years ago, oh, yeah. <laughs> he had hair, and I was dark about two years ago. Yeah. Anyway. No, but I mean, your jest aside, yeah, it, it's really just simply by us taking on board that, um, you know, those um, um, issues and, and dealing with that on behalf of the investors and shielding the investors from the complexity of that. So that that's really was one of the not, the not negotiables when we put the fund together and we have been able to achieve that. Can you maybe briefly um, talk about some of the, the back-end stuff, guys? Because, you know, setting up a fund, um, you need a trustee, you need the lawyers, the auditors, all of that. Can I presume that you've you've gone into detail around your service providers with, you know, regulation and making sure it's all um, certified, ticked off, ready to go? Yeah, we, we've definitely ticked every box uh, at least two or three times, I think, going through this because, yeah, look, I mean, obviously an investment fund is very highly compliant, uh, requires a lot of DD due diligence as you go, but certainly having an international asset or international property in this case uh, incorporated into the fund adds another layer, uh, layer of complexity. So you know, that's been one of the reasons that it's probably taken longer than what we, we'd hoped for. Uh, but, you know, we wanted to make sure we get it right. We spent a lot of time with the trustee, yes, uh, both Australian-based and also international tax uh, and legal experts uh, setting up the fund, making sure things like our additional resources compliant or whatnot too, um, and our trustee roads asset management have done a good job there. We've spent a lot of time with them, uh, but yeah, we've made sure everything's very watertight because uh, you know this is our first one. We expect it to, to do well. We we hope it does, of course, but we've got further plans beyond this, and we're very understanding of the importance that these things are ticked off right. And if. If I can just jump in really quickly, I mean, it's it's uh, we I found throughout my investment career, it's really important to surround yourself with good people, um, and, and you know whether that be on the ground um, with the actual uh, properties themselves, or whether that be your lawyers, your accountants, the trustee. You know, we, we do a lot of due diligence on the people, um, and and that's something that we're gonna you know that's something that we'll take into our investment decisions as well. It's really about doing the due diligence on the people just as much as it is on the properties, to be honest. Mm. Well, I suppose the final question uh, remains, gents, for potential investors. How do they participate in the Cornerstone International Property Fund? What do they do? How do they get started on this exciting investment journey? Great question. Uh, well, look, first and foremost, we've got our website online, condoripg.com.au. 
you head along to there, that has information about us as an asset manager, uh, but also about the fund and some FAQs. Now, through there, of course, it's always important to read the PDS, uh, the TMD, and the FSG, which are all available online there. Uh, you've then got the option to either speak uh, with us in more detail about it. And of course, we'd always recommend consideration of financial advice through a uh, personal advice provider, which could be your own contact, uh, someone new in the industry, uh, but someone as well versed to understand how this particular fund would fit into your investment portfolio. Lindsay Stewart and Michael Eager, the founders of the Cornerstone International Property Fund. Gents, best of luck with the new investment vehicle. Thank you so much for your time and your insights today, and we wish you all the very best in the future, and good luck. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Justin. Thank you very much, Justin. Cheers.